You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. Go ahead, if you would, this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, uh, and I hope you do, hope you're eager to open them up and uh, and look at what the Lord has to say, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. So we started a new sermon series a couple of weeks ago on the Sermon on the Mount. I never want to stray too far from Jesus's life and his teachings. Uh, So we had been in the Old Testament. Now we're going back into the New Testament. And all through the fall, we're going to look at Jesus's teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, So we've had one sermon in this series so far. And last week, we took a break to hear uh, an update from a missionary that our church is uh, connected with. So today is the second sermon in this series. So Matthew chapter 5, go ahead and turn there. As you do, let me pray for our time. Father, uh, as always, I just want to thank you for your grace. It was your mercy and your grace that just allowed us to even gather here this morning. Uh, And it'll only be through your continued mercy and your continued grace that we will be able to see more clearly the scripture that we have before us today. So please, Father, just guide us to have a right understanding of this passage and just to see the hope and the truth that it points us to. Ask all of this in Jesus' holy uh, and precious name. Amen. Uh, So hear from the word of the Lord this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, uh, and put, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Uh, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I do not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same uh, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. So we're studying what are probably, you know, single most well-known teachings of Jesus that we have written down for us in the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount. 
where Jesus took the crowds to a mountainside. Um, and just like Moses did with the Israelites, uh, Jesus is here to teach the people of God. Moses took them to Mount Sinai and he taught the people of God the covenant of God. And now we see Jesus arriving to proclaim a new and better covenant to his people. And two weeks ago, we, when we first started this series, uh, we talked about those, uh, you know, who would, you know, have been surprised by who Jesus said would get to be a part of this new kingdom he was inaugurating. Uh, we looked at the Beatitudes and we said that it's just look at the Beatitudes and who Jesus calls blessed and who Jesus says is going to be a part of his kingdom. You're surprised by who he says is, is going to get to enter into this kingdom. Because if you remember those who are gathered on the side of this mountain, uh, they weren't the religious elite. Uh, they weren't part of the upper echelons of society. They're not a part of the, that upper crust. Uh, they were just blue-collar fishermen. All right? They were the outcasts of society. They were the sick and the, the paralytic that Jesus has been going around healing. Yet Jesus called them blessed because it really is these kinds of individuals who are more likely to enter into Jesus's kingdom uh, rather than those who are like the Pharisees or those who are like the rich young ruler who already thought that they had their lives together. If you think that you already have your life together, then you're not going to understand your need for Christ. But if you already realize that your life is actually a spiritual mess, then you're far more likely to recognize your need for Jesus. So the kinds of individuals who are going to be a part of Jesus's kingdom came as a surprise to those who were hearing Jesus's sermon. Uh, but this morning, we're also going to see uh, that even how life is lived inside Jesus's kingdom, it's also going to be surprising because the Pharisees and the religious elite of Jesus's day, uh, they typically kept themselves isolated from everyone else around them. They even considered coming into contact with non-Jews as something uh, that would make you ritually unclean. So they tried to keep their distance. And that was actually one of their biggest complaints of Jesus, is they thought that he spent too much time hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors. But in our passage today, Jesus is going to surprise his audience again by saying that his followers aren't to retreat from the world. Rather, through the message of Christ, they are to transform the world, remolding it back into the image of Christ. So in this passage, Jesus is going to talk a lot about what it looks like to live your life as salt. And he's going to talk a lot about what it looks like to live as light. Then he's also going to talk about what it means that he came to fulfill the law. And from all of this, I actually want to talk about six ways that Jesus is saying that we should be living in light of that. Six ways that we are to live so that others might taste and see the grace of God that is being offered to them. 
And since I have six points, and I know you guys want to get out on time for lunch, uh, that means we're just going to have to dive right in and and plow through some of these. Uh, So go ahead and look back at verse 13. Let's just dive right in where Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Uh, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So, So Jesus is giving us the analogy that as his followers, we are to be more like salt. And I know in our modern culture, uh, when you say somebody, you know, you say that, oh man, that person's kind of salty. That's actually not usually a good thing. You're usually saying that they're a little rough around the edges. Uh, But there's two characteristics about salt that Jesus is trying to point our attention to. So point number one is that being salt will preserve our communities. Being salt will preserve our communities. All right, that was the number one use for salt in Jesus's day. It was used as a preservative. And I trust that everybody in here understands that back in the first century, they didn't have refrigerators. All right, you couldn't run to the grocery store and just buy uh, a pound of beef and come back home and stick it into the fridge. no. After you did all of that exhausting work of butchering your own animals, then you had a ton of more work to do curing all of the cuts of meat with salt. If you rub enough salt into meat, it's going to dry it out. It's going to create a hostile environment for bacteria, and it's going to keep it from rotting. So Jesus is saying that the presence of Christians in our communities can keep our communities from rotting. Because ever since Adam and Eve took a bite of that forbidden fruit back in the Garden of Eden, this world has been just spiraling downhill uh, in a state of of ever more spiritual decay. There is a pungent stench to this world, and it is certainly not the aroma of Christ. So, So what Jesus is saying Uh, is the solution to that. He's saying it's to get the salt out of the pantry. You know, what benefit could salt possibly be if all you did was kept it tucked away on a shelf out of sight? Jesus is saying that you and I are the salt of the earth and and we need to get to work. We we need to get out of the pantry. Yet, how often do do we do just that as a church, where we stay inside our little salt shakers rather than pour ourselves out into the nooks and crannies of society? That's a serious question for you to ponder this morning. How many friends do you have who are not a follower of Jesus? Because I know that the longer you're a Christian, the longer you go to church, what often happens is uh, all of your friends become those who are already going to church with you. So it's not uh, uncommon to wake up one morning after 
a while and realize that you don't really have anybody in your life that you interact with on a regular basis who isn't a Christian. And if that's you, then that means that you are no longer being salt to your community. You have put yourself back uh, inside that salt shaker. You've set yourself back inside the cupboard. So, So maybe this passage for you means that you need to pick up a new hobby or two. Maybe you need to join a club. Maybe you need to make some new friends, especially friends who don't know Jesus. Maybe this means that you need to get out of your house more. You need to go over and knock on your neighbor's door. You need to invite them over for dinner like you've been meaning to do for so long. Maybe this just means that you need to get out more and go to more of Highland's football games or the the basketball games so you can make new friends there. It doesn't matter how you do it so long as you are doing it. You live in a dying and decaying world, and the gospel is the only cure that can prevent that spiritual rot from accelerating. So so we need Christians in every nook and cranny and every corner of our society. We need Christian teachers in our school district. We need Christ-following students in the classroom. Uh, We need politically active citizens voting for Christ-honoring values. In every area of society, we have got to get out of our cupboards. We've got to get into our community. We've got to let the salt of the gospel get to work at preserving our community and preventing it from rotting away. That's point number one. But number two, uh, being salt not only preserves our community, um, it will also enhance our culture. Not only preserves our community, it also enhance our culture. Salt not only prevents food from rotting, uh, but it also tastes good. Uh, It provides that food with flavor. That's the other purpose that it serves. Uh, If you ever wondered why uh, restaurant food tastes so much better than what you make at your house, it's because the restaurants know how to properly salt their food. If you're just cooking up a big old steak on the grill at home and you just add a tiny little pinch of salt because you don't want to overdo it, uh, don't be surprised when your steak has no flavor. Don't be surprised when it tastes bland. If you could peer inside a restaurant's kitchen and see just how much salt some of those chefs are adding, you'd probably have a heart attack even before you ate the food. But but the reason that they add so much salt is because they understand that salt equals flavor. And that if you were concerned that much about your sodium intake, you probably wouldn't be going out to eat at their restaurant in the first place. So, So Jesus is telling us that Christians should bring out the best in our society. We we should be like that restaurant steak that has been perfectly seasoned to to bring out maximum flavor. Christians should be the hardest workers. 
We should be the best bosses. We should be the friendliest neighbors. We should make everything about this world feel like a better place. We should strive to live in such a way that even atheists want Christians around. You know, saying, I don't believe in their God, but it's certainly evident that their lives are different from everybody else. They don't cheat. They don't steal. They keep their language clean. Uh, Even atheists should long for Christian employees and Christian uh, neighbors and Christian students. If we are being salt, as Jesus commanded, then we will enhance everything about the culture that we live in. But we also have to be careful because Jesus goes on and warns us here. He says that if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, if you know anything about salt, you know that it doesn't really have an expiration date, doesn't have a shelf life, doesn't go bad. Uh, So what Jesus is talking about here is not saying that it's going to lose its taste so much as he's saying that it's going to become diluted or, or that it could even become polluted. Salt can get drowned out by enough other things that you can't taste it anymore in your food. Or worse, it can become contaminated with other stuff so that it's not even safe to season your food with. So it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out. So Jesus is saying that as Christians, we are to reform our culture, but without becoming conformed to our culture, which I know is easier said than done. On the one hand, he's saying that we're not to become like the Amish or the Mennonites where we're completely, you know, we just segregated ourselves from the world. Yet, on the other hand, as we engage the world with the gospel, we're also not to become so much like the world that we really look no different from the world. So we mustn't lose our saltiness. So Jesus says we're to live like salt. That's the first analogy that he gives. Uh, But next I want to move on. And he says that we are also to live as light. Starting in verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill uh, cannot be hidden. I want to make a couple of points now about what it's like to, to live as light. And the first is that being light will offer others sight. Being light will offer others sight. Jesus describes his followers as being like a city set on a hill. And darkness is often not something we think about too much more in modern society, you know, especially since all of our houses, even the ones way out in the country, are well lit. We have electricity. Uh, Everybody has a flashlight on them anywhere they go now if you have a smartphone. So many of us don't really understand true darkness like Jesus's original audience would have. Uh, but, But this is something that many modern astronomers think about and understand, you know, because their job over the years has increasingly uh, become harder. 
because to properly look up at the stars in the nighttime sky through a telescope, uh, you have to be pretty far away from all of your surrounding uh, light sources. I was actually reading this week that a sizable city like St. Louis, uh, in order to escape its light pollution, you have to be at least 100 miles away uh, in, in order to properly be able to see the nighttime sky without any light pollution or, or distortion. Uh, so just imagine that you were traveling back in the days of Jesus. Uh, just imagine you didn't have any of the modern conveniences like flashlights. Uh, there's not any street lights to light up your path. Uh, so it is pitch black. You know, if the skies were cloudy, if you don't have the moon out to see, uh, you'd probably even have trouble seeing uh, your hands, even if it's right in, in front of you. All right, but then imagine that as you're traveling in the, the darkest of night, you're, you're getting closer, you're inching closer and closer to the city of Jerusalem. And, and even before you could actually see the city itself, even before you could see the walls or the gates that surrounded her, you would be able to see the distant glow of the city down on the horizon. Hundreds of, of torches and house lamps that, that kept the city lit up at night. And that's what, what Jesus envisions uh, for his followers. That's, that's how he envisions us living. Christians should be the kind of individuals that you know are coming even before you see them. In a good way, they should be radiating the, the light and the love of Christ. You, you should be able to see a Christian from a hundred miles away. Um, I know I've preached this passage before uh, when I did a, another sermon series, um, and I was actually looking back over my notes and just seeing what all I, I said. Um, and one of the points that I, I tried to bring out uh, was the reality that light can't not shine. That's just a part of the nature of what being light is. Um, and especially when you have that, that glowing light of an entire city in a city that is set high up on a hill, um, it can't not be noticed by everybody else around. And that should be us as followers of Jesus. There is a sense in which we as Christians should be radioactive, not, not in the sense that we should be toxic, but in the sense that there really should be a certain glow that we give off and that makes us stand out. Not, not because that there's anything you know, particularly special about us, but because we are radiating the light of Christ. And being this kind of bright, glowing light should mean that Christians can actually help others see more clearly how this world was intended to look before our fall into sin. Faithful, sacrificial husbands, godly fathers, loving wives. Others should be able to see us and see by the light that we are shining. They, they should see how the world might have looked. We had not fallen into sin. They should be able to see how this world will one day look again after Christ's return and after sin has been vanquished. So being light will offer others sight. 
By reflecting the light of Christ, we will help the world around us see more clearly. Um, But next, I want us to see that uh, being light will also offer others life. It will offer others sight, and it will also offer others life. Look at verse 15. Uh, Jesus says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to, and out, throughout all of the house. Uh, so Jesus is talking about the, uh, you know, how ridiculous it would be to try and keep a lit lamp under a basket. Right, not only would that be dangerous, uh, it would also defeat the purpose of what that lamp was designed and created to do. Right, and just imagine trying to live your uh, life in a house like that. It's, it's midnight. For some reason, somebody in your house thought it would be funny uh, to take all of the lamps and put them under a basket so you couldn't see anything. If that happened, you would just be stumbling around in the darkness of your home, constantly tripping on furniture because you can't see anything. Um, I don't think that they had Legos back in the first century, but if they did, you would be stepping on them like I do pretty much every single night. When I turn off the lights and I try to walk across my living room to go to bed, I always forget about that landmine. Uh, there are minefields of Legos that my children leave for me to trip on. Uh, that's what life would be like without uh, that, that kind of light. Uh, every time we have a power outage, we are reminded of the importance of having light in order to be able to live our lives. Um, And even more importantly, our farmers, probably more than anyone else, understand the the importance of light in order to be able to have life. This may may sound pretty obvious, uh, but there is a reason that farmers plant their corn out in the field rather than scattering the seeds in a cave somewhere. It's because they know that you're not going to be able to grow anything in a cave without that life-giving light of a warm sun to shine down on those seeds to help them grow. And that's what Jesus, uh, that, that's why Jesus actually called himself the light of the world in John chapter 8. Uh, he said he was the light of the world in an otherwise cold and dark land. He, he had come as a vital source of warm, life-giving, life-sustaining, spiritual life. Which means that if you try to live your life at any significant distance from Jesus, it's going to be like trying to grow corn in a cave. You can try, but it's not going to work. We must recognize that Jesus is our source of light, which means that he is our source of life. And he's the only source of life for anyone else as well. So Jesus says to live as light. Uh, We we just saw that. Uh, But then in verse 16, he also adds, uh, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is saying that even you know the light 
uh, or e- that even the light of our good works can actually shine before others and give God glory. And I wonder about Jesus' original audience, like when they heard that, if maybe initially they would have thought that Jesus was saying uh, something similar to what the Pharisees taught. You know, the Pharisees, they heavily emphasized doing good works and a way to try to earn God's favor. But if Jesus's audience had thought that initially, I don't think that they thought that for very long, because again, as you look at Jesus's teachings, uh, they would have come as quite a, a surprise to his audience. All right, he was just talking about salt, then he was just talking about living as light, uh, but now he, he moves on to talk about living in light of his law. But as he does so, he actually sets the bar for righteousness both higher and lower than the Pharisees did. He sets this bar for righteousness both higher and lower, these, these expectations, uh, higher and lower than the Pharisees. So first, let's talk about how uh, high the bar sets Uh, Jesus sets the bar for holiness. He's telling you here that when you really study God's law, what it's going to teach you is that you don't really actually have any hope for ever being able to obey that law. That's point five, if you're taking notes. Jesus is saying that seeing the law will show you that you can't actually obey the law. Seeing the law will show that you actually can't obey the law. Look at uh, the very, very beginning of verse 17. Uh, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, obviously that's not the end of Jesus' thought. He goes on, keeps talking after that. But let's just pause there for a moment anyway, hearing that Jesus did not come to abolish the law. Many Jews in Jesus' day uh, felt very oppressed and weighed down by the law. Depending upon how you count all of the laws, I know I've said this before, but depending on how you count them, uh, there are 613 distinct commandments in the Old Testament that God's people were to obey. I don't think that I'd ever be able to have 613 commandments memorized, much less try to obey all of those rules. And the Pharisees, when they came along to the scene, they only sought to add extra burdens to that already heavy load. I know, again, I've talked about this before, but the Pharisees, they just added in layers of extra rules that you had to obey. Uh, They were designed to, these extra rules were designed to keep you from uh, breaking the other laws that God had put in place through Moses. Uh, So just for an example, Moses told his people that the Sabbath was a holy day uh, and therefore it was intended to be a day of rest and not a, a day of work. Well, the Pharisees, uh, they made sure to write down all of these additional uh, rules to clarify what exactly was work and what wasn't, and you know, even how far you could walk on a Sabbath day. Uh, or elsewhere, the Old Testament spoke about uh, tithing uh, 10% of your earnings to the Lord. 
Well, the Pharisees, again, had all these convoluted rules and they went to the extreme and they would tithe even a a tenth of their spice jars. All the things containing like mint and dill, they made sure to tithe even that. So, So again, just imagine that you're a part of this original audience that Jesus is talking to and you genuinely have a love for the Lord, and you genuinely want to please the Lord through your actions. Uh, But then you hear Jesus say he did not come to abolish the law. What what would be running through your mind? You might be thinking about all of those rules from the Pharisees and how they even had to tithe their spices. And then if you heard Jesus say, like he does in verse 20, where he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Just imagine that the weight of trying to obey all of those rules would just feel quite crushing to your soul. And in a way, it's supposed to be crushing. Verse 19, Jesus even says that anyone who relaxes one of the least of these commandments, he is to be called least in his kingdom. So Jesus wants to make it clear just how high that bar of holiness has been set. And he says that not one iota or dot will pass away from the law until it has been accomplished. But but here's the thing, as we talk about this, here's the thing I want to make clear. Uh, When you look at the Old Testament and you see all of the standards for holiness and and righteousness, uh, it's set incredibly high, that bar. But I want to make it clear that following all of the laws and all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, that was never meant to provide a pathway in and of itself to get to heaven. God already tried that with Adam and Eve. He made a deal with them that if they would live perfectly in the garden, then they could continually dwell with God in the garden. But Adam and Eve couldn't maintain that state of perfection and righteousness for very long, so they were quickly kicked out of the garden after they ate that forbidden fruit. So the law by itself, was never intended to provide a path uh, for you to get to heaven. At least doesn't give us any kind of pathway that we have any hope of actually following. Instead, the law was meant to provide a picture of the holiness of God. And it really should be a crushing picture of holiness, realizing that we could never possibly live up to the same standards as God. So that's how Jesus says, you know, that that bar, it's actually been set higher uh, than than even the Pharisees righteousness. But he also says that that it's set lower too. this is the last point I want to make this morning, uh, that because of what Christ came into this world to do, we don't have to live up to those standards anymore of the law. Seeing the law shows that you can't obey the law, but seeing the law also shows that because of Christ, you don't have to. That's point six. Seeing the law will show that because of Christ, you don't have to perfectly obey the law. 
Now, that doesn't mean you continue just to live in sin. The Apostle Paul points that out very clearly in Romans chapter 6. But obedience to the law is not what determines your entrance into heaven. Let's go back to verse 17 again. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That right there, that is the beauty of the Christian faith. Because of God's perfect standards and his holiness, he couldn't just abolish the law. He couldn't just turn a blind eye and just say, oh, you know, forget about these standards. But he did send somebody on our behalf who could fulfill the law, especially when he knew that we had no hope of doing so on our own. Jesus came into this world and for 33 years, he never broke any of the Ten Commandments. Or for that matter, he never broke any of the 613 commandments found all throughout the Old Testament. And because of that, that law has now been perfectly fulfilled. It it wasn't abolished, but because of the work of Christ, it has now become uh, antiquated. It's not a covenant that you or I are under anymore. We can eat all of the pork and bacon we want. Uh, We we don't have to go offer any more animal sacrifices in the temple um, it's kind of like you signed a contract with somebody only to realize that you couldn't possibly uphold your end of the deal. But somebody else was willing to step in and fulfill your obligations on your behalf. And so even though you actually didn't do anything in and of yourself, the terms of that contract are still complete. So, so as Christians... We we are no longer under the old covenant. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean we get to jettison or get rid of the old covenant. There is so much wisdom uh, and insight to glean from the Old Testament. Uh, But it does mean that our relationship with it has changed. Uh, Christ fulfilled the law that we never could. So uh, we're, we're no longer living under that crushing weight of the law of Moses. We are now living underneath the new covenant of Christ, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. So so yes, your, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees to gain entrance into heaven, but it turns out that it's not actually that hard to do. All you have to do is submit your life to Christ and you can be clothed in his righteousness. So those are the surprising ways in which Jesus was telling the crowds that day that they need to live by. This is what life is like in Jesus's kingdom. Uh, They're not to retreat from the world. Rather, through Jesus and his gospel, they're being commanded to reform the world and be a part of seeing it uh, remolded back into the image of Christ. And, And this is where we're still called, this is still how we're called to live as Christians today. We are to live as salt. We are to live as light. Uh, We have a new way now in which we are to live in light of the law as well. And through it all, our lives should continually just be pointing others 
to the life that they can have in Christ. So so let me just leave you with a final thought today. Uh, Going back to these analogies that Jesus gave in the beginning about being salt uh, and about being light. We need to understand that without the church being salt and light, and without us shining the light of the gospel into the darkness, and without trying to preserve our communities and keep them from rotting away, uh, without the church, our world will inevitably turn into hell. But with the church, with us enhancing the flavor of everything around us with the gospel, the world has a chance to receive a taste of heaven. Without the church, our world will inevitably turn into hell. But with the church, the world has a chance to receive a taste of heaven. But let's remember that as we try to live that out in our lives this week. Let me pray. Father, thank you again for just the, the myriad of illustrations and all of the analogies that are found throughout your word You have called us to be salt. You have called us to be light. And I pray that we would take what you have commanded us to to do seriously. I pray that we would not be a church that just tries to hide our light under a basket, but that we would just go boldly and we would let the light of Christ shine throughout the house. Pray that we would be like that city set upon a hill that can't not be seen. Pray that in all we do and all that, that we think and all that we say, that we would just continue to, to glorify you and pray that all we do would just point others towards you, Father. Pray that we would just be a beacon of light in the darkness of our communities. We just say all of that in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.